Yeah, I, ha I have the Christmas tie on. So, just, well, I didn't change my socks or anything, but on the back of this, you have the initials of several men from the church who have uh, had the privilege of wearing this tie and getting to sign it and pass it on to some other fortunate dude. So, somebody's next, somebody who hasn't signed it yet. I made, I made sure I signed it so it didn't come back to me. So <laughs> that's kind of a fun thing to have uh, floating around. But if you ever get this, you, ha you have to wear it to a, a Christmas event, which I'm wearing it this morning and tonight to the children's play. So I'll be competing by the rules and can pass it on. They can't say, well, you cheated, so you got to do it again, you know. <laughs> I know, I've already targeted you, so. <laughs> well, we're, we're picking up in Deuteronomy from last week on how to live out loving God, part two. And as we've talked about in this section of Deuteronomy, we're going to be picking up in chapter 14, by the way. Deuteronomy 14. What's happening here is... Mo Moses has laid out a, a 10 point sermon outline when he re preaches the Ten Commandments to this new generation of Israelites back in Deuteronomy 5, and he sums up the whole thing. What are all these 10 words about? Well, they're about loving God with everything that's in you, everything that comes out of you, and everything that's around you. That's what it's all about about and then he moves on to start working through his 10-point sermon outline he starts going through each of the 10 words and relating it to life so it's not just you know loving God isn't just a platitude but it's something that results in certain actions it, it forms a worldview it, it changes how you make decisions about how you worship, uh, how you understand the gathering of God's people. And as well, see, it even has to deal with what sort of food you eat, all of that sort of stuff. So this first section right here, 12, 1 to 16, 17, is dealing with the first four commandments. We got through the first two last week, and we're going to be picking up on commandment number three in chapter 14 but you might remember this here the the logic of the ten commandments where you have one and two are connected and they come across to number five how do you think the, the thinking of commandments one and two are connected to number five? What, what is commandment number one? Yeah, what's, yeah, you're loving God by no other gods. You have no other God. Number two, no making idols. So no other gods and then no idols. So the, the concept there is you're, you're honoring God because of uh, who he is, the authority that he has over you. And I think about that honoring and authority sort of idea. How does that tie into commandment five, which is honoring your father and mother? Yeah, so you see, you know, how do you live out loving God? There's no other God yeah, you're not to make any idols. And then he tells you to, to honor your father and mother. He says it, it has implications in, in real life. You know, it's not just like a, an idea or, you know, like a piece of jewelry you make that's just like, you know, love God. You have a cool T-shirt or bracelet or necklace or something. But it, it has implications for how you live. If you, if you, if you love God and you want to honor the authority that he, he has over you, well, you, you honor also those 
to whom he has delegated authority. Uh, and we display you know, our, our highest allegiance, which is to God within the family. And you're, you're also going to see once we get to commandment number five, this, since the logic of it is honoring all authority and the, the authority that God has delegated, it's going to tie into kings. So you're going to have commandments about kings when Moses preaches on commandment number five. So it's like uh, every uh, delegated authority vehicle in the world you're to, to show honor to. So it's just, it's you're trying to pick up on the logic of it, not just the words. You're not saying, well, I don't have to honor the king because I do honor my father and mother, and that's all that God wants. No. <laughs> he wants you to, to honor him, your parents, and everybody, which is, you know, Peter preaches that in his little deal in First Peter when he moves to, you know, he talks about honoring the emperor and honoring the brotherhood, honor everybody, everybody. Then commandment three, this is where we're going to pick up. This is not taking uh, the Lord's name in vain. And this short little phrase, do not take the Lord's name in vain, ties into all the other really short phrases in the 10 words, which is six, seven, Eight and nine. Who remembers those? I have to give y'all one of those Living Waters gospel tracks for the kids. <laughs> no adultery, no murder, no stealing, no lying. So how do you live out not taking the Lord's name in vain? You know, a lot of times we think of it as like saying something, like using his name wrong. It would certainly include that, but it has more to do with how you, you live. You think about how when Jesus corrected the Pharisees, he says, you know, the name of God is blasphemed because of you, because of how you're living. You know, it's not because of something that they, they said in particular, but it was because of adultery, murder, stealing, lying, those sort of things. So those concepts are tied together. And then the fourth commandment, which we're going to be looking at the third and the fourth here this morning, that ties over here to number 10. What is the, the fourth commandment? Yeah, to, to keep, remember, observe the Sabbath. How does that connect to number 10? What's number 10? Yeah, so what's the, the logic, the thinking that connects those two together? Yeah, you love God by honoring him on a day, honoring his, his timing. And what, what's the, what does the word Sabbath mean? Rest. What, a, what is the idea of, of rest? Is it just taking a nap? Like after God made everything in creation on the seventh day when he rested, was it just, he was just like, man, I'm exhausted. <laughs> yeah, yeah. Rest equals enjoyment so, or being satisfied with what God has done. And so if you're satisfied with what, what God has done, you're not coveting. You're not wanting something different than what he has done or something more than that. You're, you're resting in him. Uh, he is your enjoyment. He is your satisfaction. And that's the, how the principle of Sabbath ties into concepts within not coveting in the 10th commandment. And this will be super helpful for you when you like just read through these other sections in Deuteronomy. I think you'll see this logic standing out and we'll be working through that together. Uh, right now we're looking at commandment number three, not taking the Lord's name in vain in chapter 14. And well, why, why was Israel not to take the Lord's name in vain? And he says, well, look at, 
verse number two. He says, for you are a holy people to Yahweh your God, and Yahweh has chosen you to be a people for his treasured possession out of all the peoples who are on the face of the earth. Well, why weren't they to, to just live however they wanted? Well, the, the name of God is at stake and how they live. If they don't live as the holy, chosen, treasured possession that they were called to be, well, they're going to be taking the Lord's name in vain. They're going to be miscommunicating his character to others. So when you think about that for ourselves and how we live our own lives, we could ask ourselves, do, do, do I react in a way that reflects the character of God? Do I live in such a way that shows what he is like in, in everything that I decide to do, even in how I decide to, to get ready for Sunday morning and uh, interact with the people that are around me and travel with them and how I interact with the people that are here and what I'm going to do while I'm here and afterwards and the next day and the day after that. You know, in that, we're thinking about, do, do we take the Lord's name in vain and how we react to other people? Even in, uh, And the heart of all of this targets the heart. You remember the whole point of the, the law is that it's pointing at the heart, you know, what's really in there. Do you really love God with absolutely all of it? Which is exactly how Jesus preaches it in the Sermon on the Mount, Matthew 5 through 7. You know, and he preaches that commandment about uh, not, not murdering. He says, even if you're angry with your brother in your heart, which he's just preaching Leviticus. It says that in Leviticus. He's not given some new sort of idea. He's not reinterpreting anything. He's just, sent, he's just preaching his Bible to Jewish people that that was their Bible. You know, they knew that. It, he was, it's not just, oh, I haven't murdered people you know, outside externally. He says, but it's in your heart. That, that's what anger can turn into. He says, and I'm judging you at the heart level. I'm not just judging your actions. Uh, I'm judging your innermost being, even your thinking. So it's the same thing with uh, adultery. Uh, if you even lust after another person, God isn't interested if you've committed the act or not. He, he wants to know, is your heart pure? Do you, do you love him so much that internally you, like, you wouldn't even consider that? You want to have nothing to do with it. And you see, the, the law is targeted at the heart. And this ties in even to, for Israel, distinguishing between clean and unclean foods. If you kind of scan through there in chapter 14, you see this list of clean and unclean food and basically what God's given them is a, a white list and black list, which this, this isn't like a diet for you. You won't like do better if you don't eat some of these things and eat others. You don't need to like put it down in your phone and like check every time you order something at a <laughs> restaurant. Like, I don't know if I can eat this or not. But what it does is a, this, this would help protect them from spam, which I'm not talking about the weird mystery meat but kind of like the way that your email works. But what the, the email does when you're like getting out the spam, there's some things that are on the list. It's like, no, you, can, you can't have that come through, but there's certain things that, that can come through. This is kind of like a, a spam filter for the Israelites so they would know, you know, I can't, that one's okay to come through. That one is not okay to come through. But, you know, why these animals? Uh, because some of these, you, you know, you, you would uh, eat them. Well, it was animals that were associated either with being gross or death within this culture. People say, you know, only gross people eat stuff like that. You probably maybe an equivalent for us would be like roadkill. If you found out somebody had some roadkill for breakfast, you're like, that's kind of creepy, you know? <laughs> Maybe that's not good for the witness of our church for you to be eating roadkill for breakfast. Uh, or animals associated with death. So the, the idea was if, if you eat what people think is gross, they're going to think your God is gross. 
Uh, if you eat stuff that people associate with death, you're going to think, your God is a death God. So you see this, this list of foods that were clean and unclean was planned around people's perceptions of those food at, within this historical context because God wanted to communicate something about himself to his people and others, even in the diet that they had. So the idea with those words clean and unclean isn't that, you know, these are good and these are bad or these are more healthy and these are less healthy. But it's rather referring to a perception that people in that culture had of those particular foods. And it matters how one presents themselves to God. They want to be clean before him. They want to be functioning according to how he has ordered things in their worship. You might remember how in Leviticus we talked about the, what those words clean and unclean, how they refer to what is orderly by what God says and what is you know, disorderly as well. Those are concepts also within that clean and unclean. And so it matters that they come to God according to how he has ordered things for them, but also as they were to be a kingdom of priests to the, the world to show what their God was like. It mattered how they, they came to God before everybody else on the planet as well because they were ministering to them about what their God was like, even by the, the things that they chose to eat. Now, my uh, illustration I'm going to give you, it's kind of an unfortunate thing that happens to people, but uh, you can be considered unclean to your wife if not shaved. It's, it happens in some marriages. I'm not going to comment further on that, but the idea, I bring her, it's not a moral issue if you're shaved or not. But there is a perception issue. You know, you have a wife that says, you know, if you're not shaved, uh, you're unclean and it has an effect on the relationship, but it also shows me something about what you think about me, my perception, and my <laughs> preferences. And, you know, this, these concepts on clean and unclean foods, the, the logic of it gets maintained and to 1 Corinthians 8 through 10 when Paul talks about conscience issues, you know, and what is that except perception issues? You see, what if, what if you have a, another brother in, in the faith who's uh, offended by you eating food that's been sacrificed to idols? He says, now, you know that an idol's nothing. Like somebody says, oh, that food was sacrificed to idols. And you say, no, it wasn't. Idols don't exist. We can eat the food. You know, it's not a big deal. He says, but if that's your brother's perception of the thing, he says, don't sin against the brother for whom Christ died. You know, there's no need to do that, but he puts it in the context with another unbeliever being there. So you're not sitting there, you know, bickering at the table with an unbeliever. You're like, idols don't exist, bro. You know, just eat it. And he's like, no, I can't do it. That was sacrificed to idols. We can't be eating it. And the unbeliever said, man, you guys just can't get along about anything, can you? <laughs> you know, they're not seeing, you know, unity and peace and the brotherhood. But you see... We don't want to take the Lord's name in vain or misrepresent him and those sort of things. We have to consider cultural perception of things that we choose to do, which is where, you know, Paul picks up, he said, you know, to the Jew, I became a Jew. You know, I, I considered their perception of things that I did and I tried not to be an unnecessary offense. So to the Gentile, I became as a, as a Gentile. And I thought about their perceptions of things and I was, you know, sensitive to that. Not that he compromised truth, but he was wanting to not be an unnecessary offense. He was like, the, the gospel is enough of an offense to people, and he wants that to be the only thing that's offending them and not, you know, a diet that somebody thought was gross. This also was these clean and unclean food laws, as we had talked about it, was protective for the Israelites because it prevented them from eating at that Canaanite kid's house. They say, well, you know, the reason I can't come over is because I would starve to death at your house because I can't eat that stuff. <laughs> you 
God was protecting his children, but they were also understanding, you know, Gentiles are unclean to God and their practices were unclean to him. But it wasn't that they were excluded from them and that they were to hate them, but it was teaching them certain theology early on, which as that develops and you get to Acts 10, you remember uh, Peter goes on the Peter diet, which I wish somebody would write a book on this one. I hate those sort of diet books that they sell in the, there used to be Christian bookstores. Nobody knows what that is anymore. But yeah, they have like the Daniel diet or something. Like somebody do the Peter diet, rise, kill, and eat. And you got, you got your exercise in there. You got hunting in there. You got food that people actually like to eat in there. That's good. But he was to rise, kill, and eat unclean food. And, you know, Peter hadn't quite gotten over, you know, arguing with the Lord sometimes on things, even by this point. He's like, you know, no way, Lord. I've never done anything like that before. You know, you're, he's like, you know, stopping just shy of saying you're crazy, you know. And this is all in the context of him going and being a witness to Gentile Cornelius. So the point that, you know, God was making is like that there isn't a, a separation between Jew and Gentile. Uh, God, God can make either one clean. And he says, and the way he is teaching that to him at this point in history, he says, oh, all, all food is clean. There isn't any unclean food. I already, I've, I've made the point the theological point which you understand, now go witness to that Gentile Cornelius. Probably he didn't say it quite like that. He's a little more gentle. You see how that sort of logic then develops and continues into Peter and his witness to Cornelius in Acts 10. Now, in 14... 22, it'd be nice if we had a chapter break right there because we have a, a moving and thinking where we're picking up on the fourth commandment. This is stuff that ties into observing the Sabbath here. And you see things in here, uh, God's uh, like tithes, your produce, uh, and that repeated phrase we have talked about there in 23 says, you'll eat in the presence of Yahweh your God at the place where he chooses for his name to dwell, to tithe of your grain, your new wine, your oil, the firstborn of your herd and your flock so that you may learn to fear Yahweh your God all your days. So you see that what they're trusting is God's provision. Uh, they were to rest and enjoy what God has given them and not to covet something different than that and say, well, we like that other stuff that the, the Canaanites have to eat or we like the way that they do their worship different than ours or we like the way that, you know, they, they do the tithe different than us. Well, there's many, many things that are taught within the Sabbath, one, one of them being that God owns time and he's in control of everything. Uh, it's probably a good thing to be reminded of that the, the Sabbath wasn't just one day. The Jews didn't have just one Sabbath. They had multiple Sabbaths that you read about. That There are weekly ones. There are ones that would happen in certain months, certain years. Uh, and all of this to bring out God controls time. He, he sets your calendar. So when you think about how to use your time, you think about, well, what does God want me to do with my time? And God had laid that out very specifically for the sons of Israel. So what you're seeing is that he, he's in control of creation, everything in creation, including time, uh, because he has a plan that he's carrying out that's going to culminate in his goal for his creation, which is rest, and he's going to carry out his purpose for everything in the planet. You might think of how Paul stated that in Ephesians when he says, you know, all things work according to the counsel of his will. And God is teaching how the counsel of his will works within these Sabbaths. Other theological things that are taught within the Sabbath was the need to enter God's rest. 
which you think back to the beginning of your Bible. There isn't a Sabbath in the beginning of the Bible, but it talks about God resting, which ties into this day. But you don't have a Sabbath actually instituted until the Mosaic Covenant. You know, the Sabbaths are only inside of the Mosaic Covenant. They, they begin there and end there, but they also are, they have a continuation of creation logic as we've talked about it, which God, God is at rest. He has eternally been enjoying himself who he is, inter-Trinitarian relationships, everything that he's done in creation. And man, that was Adam, existed in that rest for a time which was God's and it was shared with him, but he didn't want it. He coveted having something different than that. And thus Adam and Eve fall into sin and the rest of mankind out of God's rest with the need to enter back into it, which we've had a lot of uh, lessons and studies on the the Sabbath to be sure as we've gone from Genesis to Deuteronomy. But seeing that point that the Lord makes within the Sabbath is teaching the Israelites, "You're, you're not inside of my rest, but you need to enter into it. And what he teaches them through this is, I, the Lord, make you holy. This isn't something that you can bring yourself into any more than uh, Adam could have walked past the cherubim army and the the flaming sword. Uh, God has to deal with that judgment that you deserve and make some sort of atonement so that you can be at one with him and be delivered from his judgment and enter into his rest. Uh, He has to make you holy. And this was also a a reminder of the gratitude that was owed to God, not only for the concept of salvation by grace alone, but even seeing and giving thanks for the animals that they had, the grain that they had, wine, oil, the firstborn from their flock, all of these sort of things. Now, this this was teaching them a worldview. Well, where did you get all this stuff from? Why, why do you have things as opposed to not having some things right now? God has been gracious to you. He, he's given you everything that you need to, to worship him. He's given you everything that you need for life and godliness. And he's actually told you how to carry out demonstrating that gratitude toward him. And this was something that taught him about, you know, they were to be grateful for things in the past like the Exodus event, which he reminds them of over and over. You know, the, the Exodus is, in the Old Testament is the equivalent of the cross in the New Testament. You know, it was the salvation event that they looked back to. And, but this also gave them a worldview of the present. You know, why, why are we here and not in Egypt? Because God has been merciful to us. He, he's brought us out here. Uh, why do I have grain as opposed to not having any grain. God's been merciful to us. He's the God who provides and he's given us things to enjoy. But this is also looking forward to a a future. You think of it as that concept of the blessed hope. We know that we're going to enter into a day where we have been fruitful and multiplied and, and we live in the day of the enjoyment of resting in God, completing his fruitful and multiplying plan which deals with land and man and God's command so the tithing that we read about uh, tithing isn't something we do I know we use that word sometimes to talk about putting our tithe in the, the box that's hidden there in the back which I asked about I first started coming to church here and thought you know how do you how do I like worship God and give my money to this place and help out, and they just laughed at me. They didn't even give me an answer, which wasn't real helpful, but eventually I found out it's that box that's hidden back there. <laughs> There's a couple things you could learn from that. You know, don't just laugh at people, you know. To, to, maybe they really are that ignorant, and they need to be helped along. <laughs> that's where it is, if you're wondering where it is. Uh, the reason they had this tithe, you know, this is also unique within the theocracy of Israel, it was to support the, the Levitical priest who didn't have an inheritance in the land. Uh, this is, it's a tax, basically. 
you know, just like we pay taxes to a, a government so that you know, the, the ministry of a government can exist and do things because it, it takes money to, to do stuff. Well, it was like that within Israel. It took money for the, the priest to be able to do stuff. But, you know, they, they didn't just, it wasn't just money, you know, it was food. You know, they were tithing their grain and oil and stuff. So these guys had something to eat and they could continue their ministry because they had food. You got to have food to be able to, to do stuff. But this also created a, a fellowship together with priests and the other people in the joy of God's provision. They had a fellowship that, that God has provided and God is wanting to picture certain things about his grace within this. He says, you know, one, a gift has been given to you and enough has been gifted to you that you can gift to other people. And so you can show other people that, that God isn't stingy. Uh, he, he's generous. He loves to give generously of his grace to others, which again ties into Paul and talking about the Corinthians and their gift to the Macedonian church. He says, well, why is it that you guys, you know, in your poverty are so willing to give so much to these Macedonians? He says, it's because you understand the grace of God that you've received. He's not stingy. He's generous. And you want to worship him by being generous with what he has given you to meet the needs of others. This pictures the, the character of God in that way. And the character of God is expressed in godly character. He provides abundantly and he meets needs. So you see that both of those sides in the picture of that worship. You have some people who have an abundance and some people who have needs. So it communicates two things about God, that he has an abundance and he meets needs. Having an open hand comes from having an open heart. It's from a heart that, that, that loves God ultimately. And you know, as James talks about it, you, know, you see your, your brother in need, you don't think, well, I've been saving that stuff up for me. You know, like, he needs it, I have it, I'll give it to him. And God loves a cheerful giver. It's a way in which we show that, you know, loving God isn't just a platitude. It's not just a, a saying that we have, but it, it has feet to it. You know, it's not just a fact, but it's something that we follow in. We love him by living out his grace being shown to us and through us. We're not just content to have God be gracious to us. Uh, it, we want it to change us and we want that characteristic about himself to be made known by how we live in relationship with others as well. Well, chapter 15 gets into the sabbatical year. You probably have a subtitle there. My, my Bible has a subtitle. It says remission of debt every seven years. So you have all these Sabbaths tied into things that happen in increments of seven. And in verse one, it says, at the end of every seven years, you shall grant a remission of debts. Why do you think that's important theologically? Why was Israel to grant a remission of debts? Well, just, you know, it's a good idea. It's good for the economy. Did it communicate something about God to others? <laughs> yeah. Yes. It communicates things uh, uh, about God and his character, that he, he remits debts. Uh, he forgives sins. When you think of it, this remission of debts shows that God controls time. God controls your money. And you, get, you know that phrase, you know, time is money. You know, those things are often tied together. Uh, your time spent at work is tied to the amount of w what you earn. This is you know, reiterating the stuff which you earn by working overtime is not really yours. It's God's. Where did the time come from? It came from God. Where did the strength come from to, to do the job? God. Why do you have a job as opposed to not having a job? God. 
You know, why, do you, why do you have wages from your job and food and stuff? Because of God. God has blessed you with those things. And he controls your time, your money. He controls when you farm and how you farm. He controls who you lend to. He, can, he controls how you lend money and also how you borrow money. Because all time and money belongs to God. Therefore, we're to use it how he wants us to use it. So this is like... Uh, uh, I, I want to say it's like an early form of like, you know, Dave Ramsey financial peace. I'm not necessarily wanting to commend that or anything, but you get the idea. <laughs> He's teaching them about, you know, how, how to use their money in a way that honors God. But the key thing is that he's promoting generosity. And the Sabbath, these sabbatical years, were to remind them of this generosity that God has shown toward them, of the enjoyment of his generosity toward them is to funnel through them in generosity toward one another. It was an opportunity to remember redemption, which I think is made clear in verses 15 to 17. It's on chapter 15. I'm going to read 15 to 17. He says, And you shall remember that you were a slave in the land of Egypt, and Yahweh your God redeemed you. You hear that? He's remember, redeemed. It says, therefore I am commanding you this today. It's like, why am I giving you these commands on remission of debts? Because remember, I redeemed you. And it will be that if he says to you, I will not go out from you because he loves you and your household, since he fares well with you, then you shall take an awl and pierce it through his ear into the door, and he shall be your servant forever. And you shall do likewise to your maidservant. Well, it doesn't sound very pleasant, but that's how they did things back then. You're like, you know, I don't want to leave. And you stand by the door, pierce my ear, I'm staying. (laughs) Obviously a much tougher people than maybe us. But you see these sort of concepts that things are communicated about God's salvation here. One, that you, you have... A slave could just go free. Uh, you, can't, you can't enslave somebody indefinitely. Uh, whatever it is, when people were enslaved, you could think of it as like paying a loan off. But whatever the loan was, you couldn't have somebody work to pay a loan off that would take more than seven years. And if you did, they still get to go at seven years. It's your own fault for not calculating it correctly. They, they get to go anyways. You can't enslave somebody indefinitely. And so... They, they get to go free. So there's an aspect of, that God is teaching about his salvation, and that is he sets frees, slaves free. But you can also have, there's this other picture. There's the slave that says, I don't want to go. I, I love my master so much that I, I just, I want to have my ear pierced and be identified with him and linked to him forever. So, well, that's another aspect uh, The you know, either, either way this situation goes, it communicates something about God's salvation to other people that you, ha- you have a loving master that you want to be with. Uh, you don't want to leave him. You want to serve him forever. God also, as it uh, mentions in here, verse 19, he says, uh, you, you shall set apart as holy to Yahweh, your God, all the firstborn males that are born of your herd and of your flock. You shall not work with the firstborn of your herd, nor shear the firstborn of your flock. You and your household shall eat it every year before Yahweh your God in the place which Yahweh chooses. See here, God owns the firstborn, you know, he, which is the idea of giving God your best. You're not giving him uh, the leftovers or the things that you're okay without. Uh, I told you the story about Roger Huntington. He's the fellow that runs the Cochrane Hills Bible Camp, and somebody wanted to donate to the camp a used washer and dryer because they had bought a new one for themselves, and they had to live through an awkward moment with Roger where when they came to deliver it, he said, Give the Lord the best. Give the Lord the new ones. <laughs> but you got the concept right, but 
You can imagine that'd be kind of tense in their relationship in the moment. Andrew. Yeah, so, so what's being brought out here is you have uh, a, a teaching that they are to, ha to have slaves you know, and that they're to let them go at seven years, but you also have these other commandments in which uh, you're uh, you know, not kidnapping people, not, not keeping a, a man-slave as well. How do, how do you have both of those where you have instructions on slaves and not to enslave people? Well, you see, there's different kinds of slavery. There's a, a, this right kind of slavery, which it, it's, kinda, it's harder for us to conceive because we tend to think of it in terms of things that we know about from American slavery, which this was more like uh, becoming a slave. One sense of it is just like getting a job. So uh, you would offer to, to work for somebody for some sort of wage. A lot of times it was for a piece of land, Yes, which, you know, you see that with uh, like crooked Laban and Jacob and all that sort of stuff. But, you know, there would be an agreement. You know, I'll work for you for seven years and, you know, the, the, the reward is that you know, I, I get one of your daughters. And you see, so that slavery was like getting hired basically or you could do that for a piece of land or something like that. The, the wrong kind of slavery is that then year eight, no, you're still my slave. You're like, well, I don't want to be your slave. You know, the law, the law says I go free at seven years. And then, you know, he ends up beating the slave and trying to, to force him into an uh, indentured servitude. So you see that, that would be a misapplying this idea of slavery. So there's a right idea, idea of slavery, which is like getting a job, paying a loan, something like that. There's that wrong idea of slavery where you, you just another person is oppressing somebody else and not allowing them the, their God-given uh, right to go free. So that's the difference between those two. Deuteronomy 16. God in owning time gave these festivals, these things to celebrate on their calendar, which were tied up in the Sabbaths, the ones that are mentioned here are the Passover, the Feast of Weeks, and the Feast of Booths. And all of these are tied into the Sabbath principle, which what I mean by that, they're all tied into this idea of resting in God, enjoying God and what he has provided. They're to commemorate creation rest, that God gives rest and he's going to bring everything in creation into it. So there's these vertical and horizontal components that are uh, being connected here that, you know, if, if you love God, you have a love for your neighbor. If you have a, a love for God, it, it affects uh, how you're thinking about time, money, these festivals, and worshiping together with, you know, other people. You know, you can't have this personalized religion where you can just celebrate Passover however you want, but you're to do it in community with others as God has prescribed. And each of these events, Passover, Feast of Weeks, Feast of Booths, they, they relate to something in history, and they're all tied around the harvest for the people, and they establish not only something in the past and history and in the present related to their harvest, but they establish things that are to come in the future. So this was like a uh, early, early, this is like eschatology 101. You know, he wasn't, he was teaching them where they came from, why they're to live, how they are today, and where they're going. He's given them God's redemptive calendar and worldview built into these festivals that they had. And all of these things relate to the place where Yahweh, your God, chooses. 
Uh, you see that with the Passover, verse 6. It's at the place where Yahweh your God chooses. Uh, the Feast of Weeks at the end of chapter 11. It's in the place where Yahweh your God chooses for his name to dwell. The Feast of Booths in verse 15. It says, seven days you shall celebrate a feast to Yahweh your God in the place which Yahweh chooses. He's making a point. Is that there's a place that these things are to be done which God has chosen. And what is the name of that place? Yeah, it's Jerusalem. Jerusalem is the name of that place. So the, the fulfillment of these things happens in that place which Yahweh has chosen. So there's a forward looking to, to God completing the, the things that are taught historically presently and in the future of these things that are fulfilled in that place which he chooses which to fast forward where yeah you heard that song oh what a beautiful city by big bill brunsey well it's a song he's talking about the 12 gates to the city you know hallelujah which is short for hallelujah that's just how big bill brunsey says it it you read about this in the future. Jesus comes back to Jerusalem. There's 12 gates. There's 12 tribes. So that, well, why? Why does all of that stuff have to happen again? Well, because God has to fulfill the things that he taught in these feasts in the place that he has chosen. Well, why, why does it have to be like that? Well, basically what happens is Jerusalem come, becomes a museum of redemptive history. Uh, the nations are going to, to go and travel there. Kind of like, you know, we go to see the ark in Kentucky. It's going to be better than that. I don't know if Ken Ham is going to have any part in this thing or not, but at least maybe we'll be traveling with him there. But <laughs> uh, the point that we're, we're going to travel there to Jerusalem and look at it and remember what God has done in the past when we see those 12 gates, when we see the, the 12 tribes and, and the government being exercised through those 12 tribes on the shoulders of the Messiah as promised in Isaiah. And we're going to remember what he did in the past, which is going to explain what's happening in the present and to help us to understand what's going to happen in the future from that moment. So these things, what I want to bring out here, they're, they're related to a theology of Jerusalem. They're related to a theology of the place which God has chosen. And things happening in Jerusalem necessitate looking at it as things that are going to occur in the future. And what's being taught here is ideas of God's supremacy, the worship that's going on in Jerusalem, in the place that God has chosen, it shows he is supreme here. Uh, we don't worship another. We don't create idols here. We don't live contrary to what he has instructed us to do. Uh, we live in God's rest, and we are satisfied in him and in him alone, and we don't need or want anything else other than this because, because God is supreme. He, he controls everything, and we trust him absolutely with what he has done, with what he is doing and will do, with everything that's in us, everything that comes out of us, and everything that surrounds us. Because he controls his purposes in his creation. So these events teach about God's creation purposes. But you know that in Passover, it's going to tie to Christ and the cross. Uh, with the Feast of Weeks. What does that tie to in something that's future from Deuteronomy that you can think of that we heard preached about in Acts chapter 2 a few weeks ago that happened on Pentecost. Pentecost is another name for the Feast of Weeks. You want some more hints? The church, the beginning of the church. You know, that, that was a harvest you know, the, there's this theological concept that was tied around their agricultural calendar and in God's plan for the church and the first fruits of the death of Christ resurrecting this thing, the church. 
We'll work through these festivals here a little bit more. So how do these things, each of these festivals, relate to something in history, harvest, and stuff about the future? Well, the, the Passover, what, what was the historical thing that happened? Yeah, they, they were freed from the final plague, the, the plague of the firstborn, right? Pharaoh's firstborn loses, God's firstborn wins because of his grace. You know, the historical thing of the Passover is itself, right? It's the Passover, it's the deliverance from Egypt. And, and what it taught was that redemption happens through substitutionary, a substitutionary death. Something else can die in your place. That's how salvation is going to work, and it's commemorated. How it tied into harvest is this opened up the days of the growing season. So in that, you know, think about the, the theology within that. You know, if that, that death of that, that animal opens up a new growing season, there's something else that grows from that that's tied to that in the harvest. Something that it looks forward to in the future. It's another lamb supper that happens. Which, well, pick one. There's two that you can pick, actually. Passover, it develops. Upper room, disciples are there. Yeah, it's a, the Lord's Supper. It's another lamb supper, but the lamb is Jesus. And instead of him, you know, he's showing this transition from old covenant to new covenant. You know, the point of the Passover was to bring you to me. You know, it's, it's my substitute blood death that you need. Uh, I'm the substitute lamb because a, a lamb can't be a substitute for man. A, a man needs a man substitute. Saying, you know, I'm the substitute that, that you need. And that looks forward to another Lamb's Supper yet to happen and to be fulfilled. Yeah, Marriage Supper of the Lamb. Revelation 19.9 says, Blessed are those who are invited to the Marriage Supper of the Lamb. And he said to me, These are true words of God. And you see this, these things are tied together in the death of Christ. You know, I remember 1 Corinthians 5, 7, and 8. He's referenced those often. Paul refers to Christ, our Passover. Uh, he, he's our Passover lamb. He's our substitute. He says, therefore, we're to put out the, you know, the unleavened bread, which is the idea of a life of repentance that reminds us of the, the sinlessness of Christ. Why do we repent? Why do we repent of sin? Because Christ died to get rid of our sin. That's why we do it, because he's sinless. That's why we repent of sin. What about the Feast of Weeks, also called First Fruits or Pentecost? Well, historically, it tied to the giving of the law uh, in that, that time in the wilderness wanderings in which God gave the Israelites the law. And where this tied out in the agricultural calendar and their harvest was you know, this was the initial crop to come. It was the first fruit. There you get the, the first tomato off the vine. Uh, this is to let your family know, we've got more of these coming, right? That's the idea of first fruits. You know, there's more to come, which ties into these ideas of resurrection. You know, after Jesus is resurrected, and let's talk about in 1 Corinthians 15 is the first fruits. It's because there are more resurrections to come. There's another, there's more harvest to come in the future. And God's the one who provides the harvest. He provides the first fruits. He provides the initial crop of the crop that is to come, which ties into the future of the birth of the church in Acts 2. Uh, it inaugurates, again, tying back in historically to the giving of the law, it inaugurates a new law going from being, you know, under Moses to being under Christ from old covenant into new covenant. It goes from being tied into Israel's wilderness wanderings to us now sojourning in exile as Peter talks about it in his first epistle.
the Feast of Booths. This is an interesting one here. This is how it related to harvest history in the future. Well, uh, as far as a, a harvest, the harvest point, well, okay, historically, it tied into living in the wilderness was temporary. Booths are, it's another word for tents. Tents are not permanent dwellings. Uh, it, there's sort of this concept that's developed in the tabernacle theology where it starts from a tent and it turns into a temple, you know, as they teach that God is going to move his people into a permanent dwelling in him. And concerning the harvest, this was the late harvest. This was the end of the harvest season, which shows that God fulfills what he had started. He provides the first fruits and he brings you all the way to the end of the harvest. Well, how would this relate to the future? This was not something that uh, got celebrated very regularly, which the Israelites actually did pretty bad at celebrating, you know, any and all of these festivals, but especially this one. Uh, it shows back up, you know, at, at the, in Nehemiah, <laughs> they rebuild the temple and they celebrate the Feast of Booths where they're looking back to being brought out of the wilderness, out of exile, and brought back to worship God in the place that he has chosen. But it's also looking future to the Davidic king that was promised to come from his lineage reigning in Jerusalem on the earthly throne of David. We refer to this thing, what it's looking forward to in the future is the millennial kingdom or the thousand-year kingdom when the Davidic covenant is fulfilled. Christ reigns on David's throne from Jerusalem. The place is turned into a museum of redemptive history during that time as we've talked about. And the, the Jewish people will truly celebrate the Feast of Booths at that second coming of Christ. Well, why, why does it work this way? Well, it's a reminder that they wandered in, the early, in their earlier days, but God was faithful to deliver them. You know, it's a reminder of that. Uh, it was, it's going to become also a reminder that they wandered also in the latter days, but God was still faithful to deliver them even though they were unfaithful to him at all of those points in history. It'll be a testimony that salvation is by grace alone. Uh, disobedience doesn't undo God's salvation or his promises. Uh, he will show mercy to whom he will show mercy. His election and choice of a people isn't based on who they are or what they have done, but because God has made promises that he's got to keep that go all the way back to Abraham. So Deuteronomy 16 teaches the way that time flows throughout history. It teaches the significance of that, that time, what God is meaning to teach through it. It teaches how God uses time as a paradigm for the future. You know, and they're celebrating these festivals. They're learning certain theology and looking forward to God doing certain things in the future. You know, it gave them a, a foundational eschatology to teach them a worldview and an expectation of what is to happen. But... There, there's one thing missing in all of this, which is explaining how the Sabbath ends. It doesn't tell you how it ends in the future. You just know that it's going to happen, but it's not explained at this point. If you want to see how it's explained, you read Psalm 95. Also Hebrews 4 is another good passage on the, the explanation of understanding the, the Sabbath principle and where things are moving in the future. There's going to be a rest and reunion with Christ. Our temporary dwelling is going to move to a permanent dwelling with God at the end of the ages. And so as you look at these fest festivals here, Passover is the beginning of the festivals and booths is the almost ending. And the booths celebrate God bringing Israel into the promised land it looks at the past, it looks at the present, and it gives a model of the future, how things are going to work, and that it will really be celebrated when God really brings Israel home from exile in its 
entirety. What you remember, Peter was really excited about that when he saw the transfiguration of Jesus. He sees Moses and Elijah. He's like, this is it. Like, we're going we're gonna to have the final celebration of the Feast of Booths right now. This is good. <laughs> you, I, I'm going to build one for you, Moses, and you too, Elijah. And it's, you know, while he was talking. You know, God interrupts him. You got to like a guy like that. <laughs> you know, he's just, he's, he just got to praise the Lord for the good thing that he's seeing on, going on. But in thinking about this, you know, as you're working through the, the book of Deuteronomy, some of the things that are significant theological things that have to be thought through is a, a, a theology of Israel and its relationship to the church, but also in relationship to the land as well, which is why I try to elaborate the, those sort of things as we come across them. And to, to close in this particular message, uh, this morning, I want to return back to Romans 11 and verse 30 and helping us to, to understand uh, Israel's disobedience, the mercy that had been shown to them, the mercy that has been shown to us, so that we can see in all of these things that this is exactly what God is wanting to highlight, is that he's merciful. As you turn there, I'm sure you know Romans 9 through 11 functions as a block of thought and it begins with well why why were some israelites saved it's like well because god will show mercy to whom he will show mercy now you get to the end of chapter 11 it's like well why are some gentiles saved look at verse 30 chapter 11 verse 30 he says for just as you once were disobedient to god but now have been shown mercy because of their disobedience so these also now have been disobedience that because of the mercy shown to you, that they also may now be shown mercy. For God has shut up all in disobedience so that he may show mercy to all. What do you think is, you know, in one word, if you were going to sum it up, what is God wanting to emphasize here? Mercy. That's why it's the, the word's repeated so much. It says, you know, don't be a boastful Gentile and say, well, they, they got cut off because they were disobedient. Paul says, don't think about it like that because he says, I'm not cut off. Uh, I'm a son of Israel. I'm from the tribe of Benjamin. God hasn't cut us off. He's still, there's only a partial hardening over Israel that has happened. It's not total. He says, so you Gentiles don't boast and say, well, they didn't get it because they were, they were disobedient. So like, what, you guys think that salvation is by works? Like if they were obedient, they could have kept the promises? And is that why you got them? Because you're so obedient or because you were more numerous or you were more lovely than they? Is that why you were saved? He says, no. He says, you were once disobedient to God too. Don't look back at them and say, wow, the reason they don't have the promises and we do is because they were disobedient. Said, well, such were some of you. He says, but now you've been shown mercy because of their disobedience. The blessing is extended to you because they've disobeyed, but this is all part of God's plan, that they would also be shown mercy. So he's saying there's a fullness of Israel that's to come in in the future, and he says, man, if it's good right now that a whole bunch of Gentiles are being saved, how much better is it going to be when God totally fulfills his promises to Israel? He says, that's going to be good. And you're going to love going to visit that museum, by the way, in Jerusalem. And so what he worships God for, this is what he's worshiping God for when you get to verse 33. He says, Oh, the depth of the riches and wisdom and knowledge of God. How unsearchable are his judgments and unfathomable his ways. For who has known the mind of the Lord or who became his counselor or who has first given to him that it might be repaid to him? For from him and through him and to him are all things. To him be the glory forever. Amen. He's worshiping God for his mercy and his faithfulness. And that's the hinge that turns you into chapter 12. When he says, therefore, I exert you, exhort you, brothers, by the mercies of God to present your bodies as a living sacrifice, living, holy, and pleasing to God, which is your spiritual service of worship. So he says, think about the past and what happened with Israel and how God was merciful to them. He says, think about how in the present, even in the time of the Gentiles, God hasn't forsaken them. He says, there might be more Gentiles in the church than Jewish people. He says, Jewish people are still 
getting saved. And God is going to complete his promise to Israel in the future. So how do you know? Because God is merciful and he's faithful. And when you think about that, that's what teaches you how to live out loving God. So you think about his mercy and that leads to wanting to give your life as a living sacrifice to him. So I'm going to close us in prayer because we're a little over time. And you can ask your question afterwards. <laughs> Our gracious Lord, we thank you for this study of your word. We thank you for this reminder of your love, your mercy, your compassion shown throughout the ages, even to stubborn, stiff-necked people of whom we were once. But you have given us new hearts, new desires. You have brought us to yourself. We praise you for your grace. We praise you that salvation is all of grace. It's all of your mercy. Pray that you would teach and train our hearts to worship you even as Paul did, that you would give us that understanding that would delight and respond with such doxology and a life that is lived in sacrifice to you who is worthy of all worship and the totality of our lives given to you and enjoying the rest in which you bring your people. Amen.